the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. I'm Carrie Corgan, and this is The Opus, an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy. In our latest season, I'm joined by Lizzie Hale, Warren Zanes, Daphne A. Brooks, and many more to revisit Jeff Buckley's Grace. We discuss Buckley's femininity in an era of hypermasculine alt-rock, how the record's mythology was shaped by his tragic death, and the delicate work of keeping his legacy alive. Find us at Consequence of Sound or wherever you listen to podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. to all of you beautiful pod people out there. I'm your host, Leo Phillips, and this is another edition of This Must Be The Gig. It's your little backstage pass to the world of live music. Each and every single week, I bring you a fascinating conversation from the beating heart of the live music and performance scene. And what that means is really chatting to musicians about what makes them tick on tour, festival founders about why they curate certain lineups they curate, choreographers, comedians about their favorite concerts and performances, and actors really anyone obsessed with performance in the way that we are over here. But before we get into this week's episode, let's check in with our constant companion here at TMBTG Studios, Engineer Adam. I'm talking very fast. Yeah, I love how... I had a lot of coffee. I love that intro every single time, I gotta say. Why? I feel feel my heart flutter, my (laughs) head lift. I'm just like, oh, that's right. I am this constant companion. Well, I also have to always introduce the show just in case we have new listeners. Absolutely. It's boring for the people that continue to listen, but thank you. It's music to my ears Mm -hmm. every time, so I can't say it's boring. What's happening with you? What's going on? I've been doing some hardcore binging oh, of, and? of sci-fi and fantasy TV shows from, <laughs> from my past. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just what I've been up to. What have you been watching? 
uh, started to rewatch Buffy from the beginning. We are watching that together. That's true. Everyone out there, we're sharing that rewatch. <laughs> also, the X Files. Mm-hmm. I've got to say, I was inspired uh, by this week's episode. Hint, hint again to watch Fringe as well, which I know is you one of your times. Like a <laughs> a game show host. <laughs> I'm watching Fringe, and that's like the the last. Um, <laughs> sorry, that is one of my all-time favorite I know, shows. I know, I was inspired. It was around the same time as um, Dollhouse, and what else was around that time? Was Millennium about then too, or is that a little earlier? I don't know. <laughs> Your voice—it's just resonant, baby. That's all it is. <laughs> um. But that's enough TV chat for one intro i believe <laughs> that's not enough no but anyway i think that i we just need to get to the yes episode. yes yes let's yeah. get to the interview this week we also wanted to let you know as always it's very important it has to be done give us five stars wherever you listen to your parentheses if you like us give us five stars and review us and subscribe it is all one clicky away from your dreams. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're I'm listening, of you. it has an option to go rate a us, dream. review, and subscribe. It is a big deal. Go get it done. It's important. It's a dream within a dream. Reach out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, what have you, at TMBTGPod, at Lior Phillips. Let us know what you're thinking, what you'd like to see in the future from the show. We'd love chatting with you. And in your review... What you could do instead of leaving something boring and utterly dry and sobering, why don't you just leave us a little concert experience yeah, of yours? Yeah, tell us about your favorite concert. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or any other episodes that you loved, or suggest maybe guests that you want to see on the show. Ooh, we are yeah. now on episode... We are now on episode 64! Holy moly, Nintendo 64 episode. Yes, fast and reliable. <laughs> <laughs> and also 64 squares on a chessboard. And I believe it's the code for New Zealand internationally. This is great. This is all uh, impromptu, yeah. improv. Oh, yeah. By the Off way, the that's what we head. do. So we do over here. We know things. But uh, one thing we do know is that this guest is one that we are unbelievably inspired by and someone that I've been wanting to chat to ever since I was in the live audience of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, live in Chicago at the Chase Bank Theater. Do I sound like him? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it was a fantastic show. Lance Reddick was the guest. And immediately when he's beautifully mellow and... Mellifluous. It, his voice is just so soothing. Absolutely. And I loved how charming and energetic he was. The audience loved him. They were making visual hand signals like thumbs and clapping and facial expressions of smiling. And there was teeth Joy involved. Joy and beauty. It was great. I really enjoyed that. So I tracked him down. And I have the one and only Lance Reddick for everybody. He is the star of so many shows. Oh, yeah. Star of The Wire, Fringe, The New Bosch, uh, John Lost? Wick. Lost. Uh, Lost. So much. We also explore what it takes 
for an artist like him to focus and perform in the middle of dozens of cast and crew members, we chat about a really challenging experience that he had and also how he over overcame it and how he started in the acting world and what really brought him. We, we kind of go through the entire trajectory of his career. When they're making the Lance Reddick biopic in... They can like listen back 20 to 20 years. They could just listen to this episode and it's got everything. He's just, he's been able to really go above and beyond in all of his roles. We talk about American Horror Story, uh, how he studies for accents Amazing. that we haven't yeah. been able to do before. Just a really beautiful open chat about performance, which is exactly what we do here. Absolutely. And I felt blessed and completely in wonder and awe. And we also chat about his initial dream of becoming a musician with his, uh, we chat about his album. Contemplations and Remembrances, which is fantastic. He lived that dream. It's incredible. Yeah. And we also just discover some of his earliest experiences as a performer and so much more. So let us not be delayed. This is me and Lance Reddick. Enjoy! best place to start is is where does your story start what did you always want to be in the arts when you were younger yes i mean i started uh acting as something that developed much later in my life but music um my mother was an instrumental music teacher in the city schools in baltimore um so that was that was kind of my first introduction to music because she had it in the house all the time uh and my um we, we had a piano in the house <clears throat> excuse me that my mother would use to to prepare uh, things for her students. Mm -hmm. And so I used to sit at the piano pretending that I was playing and I would just bang on the piano. Oh my and God. my mother's, <laughs> yeah, my mother very quickly said, you can't do that. If you want to, if you want to play the piano, you have, you have, to, you have to take a lesson. Yes. And being a little kid, I was, I just thought, well, okay, I don't know what that is, but that sounds fun. So I said, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so I started taking lessons when I was six years old. Wow. And did you love it? Or did you just want to be able to be part of something musical? Did you particularly like that instrument? What's interesting? Well, I did. I did. I love the piano. Mm. I did take to music right away. Um, what was what was always touch and go was that I loved to play, but I hated to practice. Mm. And I was <laughs> from a very early age. I was drawn to pop music, but my studies were in classical music. And so even though um, I, I developed a love for classical music, my first love was always got, was kind of popular music. I, I, I progressed from, from studying privately with a local teacher to um, um, studying. By the time I was in junior high school, mm -hmm. I started studying piano at the Peabody, at the prep department of the Peabody Conservatory. Oh, right. Oh, wow. Is, okay. Yeah. Uh, and then my, uh, my, in eighth grade, I started studying, uh, music theory, uh, and, uh, my music, uh, uh, on Saturday after, and I don't even know why, uh, but, um, and the, the music theory teacher said, you know what, there's this summer camp that I teach at that, uh, I think you might be great for. And it was, it's a place called the Walden School, which to this day, mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I donate to them every year because it was an experience that changed my life. And so all through high school, every summer I would... We would uh, we would board a bus in Baltimore and drive mm -hmm. up to. At first it was Vermont, and then uh, then later we moved to another uh, location, uh, another uh, school mm -hmm. in New Hampshire. 
uh, and for five weeks we would study uh, composition and, and uh, music theory. So how then did you go from that? Because obviously, I think we all share the same thing. If anybody wants to do something versus actually going through the motion of having to practice it, it gets so frustrating after a while because there's so many rules and there's so many things, especially when with regard to classical music. But then how did you transition into the career that you have today? Or do you, do, do you have both? Because I don't know how prominent... Music is still in your life. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I professionally, mm. uh, I, I don't think I've ever worked as a musician. Um, I did. I, I did one. I, I recorded one CD um, about uh, a little over ten years ago. It's called Contemplations and Remembrances, Ooh. and it was. Um, it, it, it's uh, it's actually a CD of uh, predominantly jazz songs. There's one pop rock tune on there that I wrote when I was 25 years old. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's, it's actually, most of the music is music that I started writing in my in my 30s, well after I was uh, well after I'd left drama school and I was I was I was um, I was working professionally as an actor. Uh, I was um, I I I went to, so let me backtrack a little bit. Yes. So um, so uh, I went to. Um, you know, I went to the University of Rochester um, for college, and the main reason I applied to the University of Rochester was because the Eastman School of Music is part of the university. So even though I didn't apply to Eastman, for some reason I just wanted I just wanted to be around that. Uh, believe it or not, I was actually a physics major, <laughs> um, oh, wow. and I went. Okay. To, uh, yeah, my first semester at the at the U of R, I went to a concert at Eastman, and I walked out of there thinking this is where I belong. So I applied as a transfer student in composition. Mm -hmm. I got in, and then the next year I was uh, I was a composition major at Eastman, oh. and I was I was there for the next. Well, I was going to say four years. The next five years, there was one year that I stayed in Rochester, but I took a year off. Okay. Um, uh, and I always I always um, I had an affinity for math, and I always loved music theory, but. Um, it was like pulling teeth to get me. I frustrated the heck out of my teachers, my, my piano and my composition teachers, because it was just, I, I, I had so many other interests. The truth was I just didn't really want to be a classical composer. I really wanted to be a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and also, one of, you know, one of my best friends uh, at Eastman um, was obsessed with Sting and Sondheim. Okay. And he, he bugged the heck out of me. <laughs> to listen to Sting's first solo album, Dreams of the Blue Turtles. Mm -hmm. And I just wouldn't listen to it. One day I was in his room hanging out and he says, we're going to listen to this right now. I'm like, oh, geez, no, really? <laughs> and he made me sit and listen, listen to the album. And I was like, it's okay. Mm. Um, and he did the same thing with Sweeney Todd. Oh. Once, one summer, one summer I went to visit him at his, uh, I, sp I spent a weekend with him, uh, stayed at his folks' house in New Jersey. He, he was from New Jersey. Mm -hmm. His name's David Wallenberger. Um, and he sat, he, he made me, he forced me to sit down and, and put headphones on me. And we listened to the entire, um, the entire um, Sweeney Todd, the entire musical. By force. Uh, <laughs> well, kind of. But, you know, by the time it was over, I was like, I have never heard you anything get it. like this. Yes, this is, of this course. Is genius. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I, um, I left music school. I dropped out of music school um, without graduating. Um, I got married straight out of school and um, with this dream of kind of being a rock, this rock star, but with no plan. Mm. <laughs> um, but, uh, and one day I was driving and I hear 
free, free set, set them free mm-hmm. on the radio. And I was like, even though, even though three or four years earlier, David had kind of forced me to listen to the album. I didn't really get it. And I listened to it and I was thinking, wow, what's that? Like, I don't know. Like I haven't heard music like that, before, mm. pop music like that before. Mm. So I went in, I, so when I, I went out and I bought the, the album and I started listening to it over and over again and slowly, but surely like song after song, I'd be like, I'm not sure what he's doing here. What, you know? Yeah. And then I'd listen to it and, and then slowly be like, Oh, that's what he's doing. And that's, you know what I mean? Because mm. Sting was, you know, he was really kind of, um, breaking open the boundaries, um, you know, as far as I was concerned, um, with, um, ter- I don't want to, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the right way to say this. Yeah. I don't want to make it sound like, I don't think that pop, pop music is real art, but, um, right. I felt that, I felt that there was a sophistication that he was able to successfully bring, not just to, 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 to his songwriting, not just compositionally, which was incredibly sophisticated, yeah. but poetically, but poetically. Right. Um, you know, my, me, and, and, um, and that was, the, that was one of the other things that I got out of Stephen Sondheim, just how he wrote mm. words. Mm. And so when I write songs, I'd say the people that influenced me the most, just in terms of how I, how I approach writing lyrics are Sting and Stephen, Stephen Sondheim. So when you heard that and you had, obviously you, you'd left the school of, for music, what what in terms of trying to pursue, you know, that life as a rock star? How did you land up then with acting? What was the trajectory? Because obviously, dreams of being a rock star that never really dies, and you can essentially no, be a rock star, you know, as your characters in different roles. You can you can have that bravado and that presence, and it's still performing. So, how did you get into that? What's interesting about the acting is that I. Uh, the first experience I ever had acting was was an assignment that I had in English class when I was 15 years old. Mm, wow. So we were reading um, we were reading Macbeth, and <laughs> I never ended up reading the play. But we were we were told to prepare a monologue, and I was already. It's funny. I was a big Star Trek fan, and I had read somewhere that William Shatner was a Shakespearean actor. Yes. <laughs> so you know, I, I mean, one day, completely independent of this assignment, um, I had um, I had opened up one of my father's old um, um, college books of Shakespeare plays mm. um, anthologies, and I uh, opened it to just randomly opened it to Brutus's famous speech, um, "Romans, Countrymen, and Lovers," that he gives when he's when he's trying to trying to calm the crowd down after they found out that they've murdered Caesar. Yes, um, and I, I try to imagine how would how would William Shatner do it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that he was your because obviously you know if you are a fan of that franchise you you get so into it you know and you you want to study yeah. every single thing but I don't think that's a bad starting point because that is the the, the the theatrics and the drama behind that kind of acting and to be honest his delivery <laughs> um people you know say it's comical but it's it's fantastic that he commits to things you know well, the th- interesting thing about Shatner is if, if you watch the if you watch the show, mm. he started that 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 kind of um, melodrama drama, melodramatic almost falling into particular patterns of right. rhythm and tune right. that 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 have become what people parody. Mm. He started mm. falling into in the second season, but the first season he, he did really beautiful naturalistic work. Mm. 
uh, that was really very cinematic. So you had already and, had and, a little taste of it. So what was your... Because obviously the fixation with music comes from many different areas. The fixation with acting, with arts, comes from so many different angles. But then what... Well, I grew what, up addicted to television. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up addicted to television. So did we so, all. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but the thing about it is I never, I never considered being an actor. Never growing up. Wow. Uh, and but it was when I when I when I something about having to prepare this monologue because I did the if it were done when tis if it were done when tis done speech the famous uh, the famous famous monologue that Macbeth has when he's trying to when he's trying to kind of um, convince himself to uh, murder the king mm-hmm. and um, um, in preparing that because uh, I. I hated doing homework as much as I hated practicing, <laughs> but for some reason I just became obsessed with preparing the speech. And so uh, when we got up to do the monologues and I stood up, it was like something magic happened. Mm. And, like, uh, and I was doing something that nobody else was doing. I wasn't just saying a line that was being the character. Um, and then I thought, well, that was a cool experience. And then I kind of put it away. Mm. Um, that was my sophomore year. Then my, my senior year, I auditioned for a play at school uh, for, for one, of, one of the leads, I didn't get it, and I ended up being cast as uh, the the, uh, the dealer. It was in it was the musical Fiorello, so I had three lines. <laughs> um, and then when I got to college, for some reason, I just had this. I just thought, you know what? I want to act. I want to like. Uh, I, I I could be good at this. Mm. So that was my extra. That was my extracurricular thing. That was my thing that I did just for fun. Mm. So at, at least once a year, I would do a play. Uh, when I transferred to Eastman, I'd go, I'd go over to the university and I'd find time to do a play every year. <laughs> um, and I had a, it was the only thing in my life I ever did just for fun. So, so fast forward, um, um, you know, after I've um, dropped out of college, um, I get married about so uh, a year and a, a little over a year and a half after, after I got uh, married, um, I found out that my wife was pregnant. Oh my gosh! Okay. Um, yeah, and and you know I'm working in a I'm working in a jewelry and lap in a jewelry and crystal store doing lap gear work in the back room, you know, uh, learning to um, and listening to Sting all day long. <laughs> um, Maybe that's and, why she got um, pregnant so quickly, you know. Sting's the man. <laughs> <laughs> and know? well. Maybe, but anyway, so, um, you know, you know, I found myself, uh, uh, shortly after, within a year after my daughter was born, uh, working three jobs, seven days a week. Mm, mm. Um, and I had a, uh, what happened was, and, and I, and I had, when I first moved, cause I was living in Boston at the time I moved to Boston from Rochester, New York, which is where, um, Eastman is. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I hooked up with a recording studio in Boston that I'd done a demo tape they kind of butchered my songs. <laughs> um, I mean, they really kind of uh, taken the edge off them mm-hmm. to try to make them quote unquote more commercial. And I, I had, you know, I had a back injury um, uh, about a year after my daughter was born that that laid me up uh, for about a month. Oh no! And yeah, and it was it was it was rough um, because I was I wasn't making much money as it was. Um, but it was it was um, it was a situation where I realized that I. First of all, one of the things I had to, had to come to terms with was the fact that the recording studio was just taking me for a ride and they were never going to get me a record deal. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing money. was, yeah. yeah. And the other thing was uh, that I had to come up with some other approach to how I was living my life or I was going to be doing this for the rest of my life. Oh, right. And I, don't, I had no idea what possessed me, but I thought, well, you know, 
I know I can sing, I know I can act. Mm. So let me try that. So I just started going on local. First, I started going on local musical theater auditions. And after two of those, I realized I have a nice voice, but I'm really a songwriter who sings, but these mm. people are singers. Mm. And so then I just started going on straight uh, theater auditions, non-equity theater auditions in Boston. And I started just very quickly getting cast and getting cast and getting cast and doing theater. Um, uh, about six to 12 months into it, I started taking an on-camera course at uh, this uh, casting director. Uh, I don't know if they're still around called uh, Collins Pickman. Um, and um, Patty Collins was my teacher and she really liked me. So she started bringing me in for on-camera stuff. And uh, then out of the, out of, on a lark, and this, it's its own story. I don't know if we have time for it, but um, We've I, got time. <laughs> I, well, one of the things I did uh, that allowed me to go on auditions and, and, and to have rehearsals and plays was uh, because Boston, Boston has so, it's so many schools and so many art schools. Um, I started working as an artist model because ah. it was very easy to have, it was very easy to have flexible hours. And it was, you know, if you, if you, if something came up, you could just get a list of other, other models and call somebody to come take over, you know, and come sub for you. Mm. So, uh, there, there was a, there was an artist, uh, is an artist named Lou Petty, who, uh, I was working at a school in Boston called the museum school and he taught there. And I had, I had, um, I had, I was very popular with, with, uh, one of his, some of his drawing classes and modeled up his drawing classes. And so he requested to, 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 uh, to, to paint me privately. So uh, I started modeling for him privately and uh, I would just sit in this chair in these green khaki pants and this old football jersey that I had from high school. Yeah. And he would paint me and we would just talk for three hours at a time. And um, I needed to have the radio on. We'd talk about anything from movies to music to politics. Mm. And one day he asked me about training. And uh, being the naive, arrogant guy that I was, I said, well, you don't need to train to be an actor. You just learn as you go. Oh. <laughs> uh, even, even though I was finding out that the, the bigger the roles were, mm. the, the, the less consistent my work was unless I had a really good director. And if, the, if there was, and if the writing was bad, I was completely lost. Right, right. So, but in that conversation, um, I said to him, well, the only place I even consider... Yeah, I wanted to go. I said I want to go. To the, I want to go to New York. I just want to go to New York, and I want mm. to start at the actor studio because that's all I knew, you know. Uh, and then I said this really kind of bizarre thing. I said the only other place I'd even consider applying is Yale, and I couldn't get into Yale anyway because I never finished my bachelor's degree. And the only reason I said that was because I knew Meryl Streep went to Yale. I didn't know anything else about the Yale Drama School except that Meryl Streep went there. Mm. I was really, I was literally talking out of my ass, just making conversation. <laughs> and he says to me. Well, you know, you might want to consider applying because I have my master's in painting from Yale, and I don't, uh, and I don't, don't have a bachelor's degree because I went to a diploma school. Mm. Wow! So I left that, and I don't know what, but something about that conversation, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So I called up information. I got the the number of the drama school, and I called them and I asked them what the deal was if you didn't have a bachelor's degree. Mm. And they said that you could apply to the drama school. Um, as a certificate student, it's exactly the same program. Um, and you could, you could, if you got in, you could just go through as a certificate student. And if you, if you, if you ever got your bachelor's degree, all you needed to do was, was to send the drama school, uh, proof of your bachelor's degree and they'll give you your master's. Oh, wow. So okay. I was like, 
So I was like, oh, oh okay. Um, so I applied. <laughs> yeah, I applied. Uh, I got the application. I saw that, uh, how, I, I think it was like $50. Like, damn, yeah, $50. Wow. Yeah. And then I needed, I needed two recommendations. Uh, I got one recommendation uh, from, uh, uh, it was, she was the artistic director at a place called the Wheelock Family Theater, which was um, uh, attached to Wheelock College in Boston. And she gave me, uh, and I, I'd done a couple plays there. She gave me a very lukewarm, uh, lukewarm um, um, recommendation. recommendation. Oh. And then I had another recommendation that was stellar. And I don't know why, but something possessed me to look through the application again. And even though it's the same, it doesn't make any sense, but because it's the same program, mm. uh, I had to do exactly the same coursework as everybody else. But as a certificate student, number they didn't, have, they didn't need your grades. Okay. And you only needed one recommendation. Oh, wow. So I threw out the bad one. <laughs> I, I You're just a clever it. man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I set it in. And then you had to, you had to uh, prepare two contrasting monologues for your audition. And uh, one of them had to be in verse. And being a guy who didn't like to study, I, you know, I didn't, from high school, I didn't remember what verse was. So I was asking one of my acting buddies, well, what's verse? <laughs> and he said, well, something Shakespeare or Greek. And I said, so anything Shakespeare? He said, no, 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 no. And so he broke down iambic pentameter for me. Mm. And so, um, and interestingly enough, I had just done, um, I, 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 for the theater that where I'd gotten the really great recommendation, uh, I had done, I had kind of done a benefit performance. It was like an evening of Shakespeare. And uh, I had done a scene from a fellow uh, with, a, with a friend of mine. Oh, wow. And the guy who was directing our scene had handed me these, um, um, had loaned me these uh, uh, VHS cassette tapes of, um, of John Barton. Uh, the, there, was, there was a show in the UK uh, in the 80s called Playing Shakespeare where John Barton and the RSC would, um, would do, do scene study. So I, there was all these tapes of like Patrick Stewart and Judy Dench and Ian, Mc, Ian McCallum, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and from the 80s, you know, doing scene study with John Barton. Wow. So um, I actually took a, I, I, I took a scene from the beginning of The Merchant of Venice um, that I watched uh, Ian, Ian McCallum doing with, with someone else. And I, I kind of, I, I took a piece of dialogue and I, formed it into a monologue. <laughs> mm. Wow. I mean, that's um, not, that is a fantastic teacher to, you know, even if it is through a VHS or a tape or, you know, what yeah, have you, yeah. what an incredible teacher to, and he was young then as well. When was that? That was in the nineties. And that tape was what? This from was the in 80s? 1991. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This, this was 91 that I, okay. that I, I did this. Yes. Um, Cause that's when I applied. Oh no, no, no. I'm wrong. It was like, it was in 1990. Because my first my first year year was ninety one. Okay. So, yeah. This is, yeah. Um, so I applied, um, and then I got in. <laughs> wow! And that felt. I mean, you obviously took the necessary steps to get in. You know, to enroll into the course, but you it definitely took a lot of perseverance. Just internally, I can imagine, and emotionally, switching gears, going for a specific career. You know, because when you, I think when you, when you're younger and you think you have all these plans and these dreams and these ideas, um, but when you yeah. actually get into practice it, it's it's such a different experience. So then, how did, what did that teach you then about yourself? Uh, you know, going into a different career, being so, you know, being so new to it. What did that teach you? Well, 
interesting. Uh, Taught me a few different things. First of all, um, that sometimes the notions that you have about what you want out of your life don't necessarily have to do with where you're. I don't want to say destiny life because that's that's too um, hairy fairy. Um, but <laughs> that's loud. But, but <laughs> what's what's what's, inter- what's interesting thing? What's interesting is that. Music is my first love, mm. but acting is what I was born to do. Absolutely. Because acting is the only thing that I've, I've always did, I ever did just for fun. I mean, until I started pursuing it, you know what I mean? And the other thing is that, uh, is that coming to it later in life, um, the disadvantage I had was that I came to it without any training and the, and the advantage that I had was that I came to it without any training. Right. Um, so you weren't jaded. Without or, any formal, without yeah. any formal acting training, and without, and that I was older because uh, what that did was I was able to bring a, a certain a, um, weight and life experience to my work that uh, even when I was at Yale, other my classmates didn't have. And the other thing is because I struggled so hard. Uh, I, um, you know, being being broke and trying like there was there was at one point at which uh, we uh, we couldn't pay our rent anymore, and another family took us in. So we were living with another family wow. from from the time that my daughter was about a year old until uh, she was for a year. They, you know, we lived we lived wow. with them until we got back on our feet. So it was high stakes so when I got, for you. To, to so when I got to Yale, I just worked harder than anybody else. Right. Which makes it, of course, so much more fulfilling and rewarding to go into yeah. something as opposed to yeah. having a privilege uh, and or some sort of training that you feel you are then... Because training often leads to connections, right? When you're working with with an, a teacher who's like, oh, you, I see a talent, and then they put you in touch with an agent. And sometimes it happens like that for many people. But 95% of the rest of the, pop, you know, of the population have to work and grind through it uh, for that big break? Well, in terms of connections, just the way that Yale is set up, because at, at the time, kind of the top, the top drama schools in the country were Yale, Juilliard, and NYU. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, my understanding is, and we, so there's something called league, the league, they call them the league scenes. I don't know why they call the league scenes, but um, they're basically audition scenes for the industry that are set up by the schools. Okay. And Yale and Juilliard and NYU used to do them all together, and then Juilliard started doing their own, their own thing. And so when I got out of drama school, we did ours with NYU. So, uh, and we did, we did ours in New York. Now Yale actually does them in New York, and they do them in Los Angeles. So we had, our, we had audition scene. We basically had to come up with two contrasting audition scenes. We had to find partners within our class, and... Uh, I did one dramatic scene, which uh, actually my partner ended up writing for us. Uh, and the other scene was a comic scene that I did with Paul Giamatti, oh, which was great. I love yeah, Paul. Paul was, yeah, Paul was in my class. Yeah, what a fantastic! Uh, oh, he, that is a character. What a fantastic! He's an artist. I think you can't even call him an actor. Oh, he's he was the well. smartest, most talented person in the class, mm. hands down. Like I was the hardest worker. And the most uh, tenaciously analytical, Paul was just the smartest and most talented. So it was just one of those things where he was a star from the first day of class, mm. uh, and he was um, he was just practicing being a star for three years. Which I, <laughs> I, I, I well, well, I mean, kind. Of, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he didn't grow and he didn't learn, yes. but it was like. 
But he had it Paul and it was everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> but that's Whereas happening. I was, I was the guy that kept getting better and kept getting better and kept getting yes. better and kept getting better because I just worked so freaking hard. So it, you, and I was you so ruthlessly took... honest with myself. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But And that's also quite humbling, right, to, to know so, it's high stakes. So, it's so much is riding on your involvement and the amount of effort that you're putting into it, but also that you can put – it's all a competition, right? So you, you, you're you going to naturally put yourself against up against everybody around you, but you also have to grow. So it's a very, very uh, interesting balance that you have to try and tackle. Well, it's interesting because for me, I, I feel that a, a lot of people I, – I, I, I feel like I have a tricky personality because I'm not very competitive, okay. but I'm very ambitious. But yeah. I'm very ambitious. <laughs> Yes, I relate to so, that. Yes. So the thing that I had to, so the thing that I, and once again, being older helped me. The thing that I, I realized very quickly on was that com- competing with everybody else wasn't going to work. I was going to have to, I was going to, I had to, I, first of all, I had to set a goal. So I, my, my, and the goal that I said was I want to be the best transformational character actor in the world. That's what I want to do. And so I said, so in order to gain, but the other thing I understood about goals is that in order to to achieve something, you have to be able to quantify it. So even if it's arbitrary, you have to make up some kind, you know what I mean? So I looked at the people who I thought were the best at that. And it was Mel Street and, and, and Daniel Day-Lewis and, um, and his prime John Voight and, to a certain, and, and Kathy Bates and to a certain extent, uh, Dustin Hoffman. And I just... I, I just and I, I would go on, when I was in drama school. I would pick actors and I would go on binges and I would just go go through their work. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and so. And that can teach so you a I lot was, as well. It can teach you not only looking at your peers oh, around learned, you, yeah, but also yeah, looking at yeah. the greats and, and and being inspired. So it can also teach you a lot about your approach. It's like taking, as you said, quantifying. It's taking all this information and then picking the right path that suits your personality, yeah. suits your goals. It's, it, it's like a maths equation. No wonder you were so interested in, <laughs> in theory and how things, uh, you know, join together. I think that's an interesting connection. <laughs> oh, I think that that helped me being so analytical because I, I also had a, I've also had an affinity, always had an affinity for math. Mm. So, um, so uh, I think that helped too. But so anyway, so I, I so in, in so my thing was, oh, whenever I would get caught up in how I'm doing compared to everybody else, or how cause everybody wanted to be, a, everybody wanted to be a star. The 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 problem, the thing that I saw people fall into consistently was everybody wanted to be a, the star at the school, and they wanted to be a star in each production. My thing was, how, what what can I, I? I I'm not saying I didn't want that. But what was more important to me was what am I going to what is what am I going to learn today that's going to make me better tomorrow, and what did I learn less yesterday that I can practice today that's going to make me better. Mm. So I I feel like I learned as much from my mistakes as I learned from my people would make people would screw up and they shut down. I and my attitude was I screw up and then I'd say okay how do I how do I how do I use this to what can I learn to make myself better in the next one. But that's an unbelievable attitude, especially considering somebody who is up against you, up against so much pressure, not only financially, but also just to prove something to yourself. Because often when you aren't competitive and very ambitious, your toughest critic is 
the the internal loud character that comes that from your own ego and so I can only imagine how tough that was for you to navigate and how I think that's such a great way to to approach something new you know instead of stumbling and cracking I call it like robot mode you know when you just shut down um you took it and ran with it I think that's that's incredibly inspiring I, I haven't really discussed this much with a lot of people but I think that that's an amazing uh amazing thing to acknowledge but I mean, if, if I'd gone when I was 21, I wouldn't have, that wouldn't have been the case. Right. But going at 29, because the other thing is, I was, I was one of the oldest people, not only one of the oldest people in my class, but one of the oldest people in the school my first year. I mean, I was 29 years old my first year. I know you say that old, and it's like, that's so young. But, you, but obviously, people start when they're 17. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the youngest person in my class was 21. Um, the, and, you know, people go to Juilliard, you know, out of high school. So yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know much about that program, but to me, that's weird where people, some people come from college and you do Juliet, the Juilliard um, drama school as a, as, as graduate school, but some people come straight out of high school. So you've got 18 year olds with 25, 26 year olds in the same starting class. But that puts you at a different level, of course, because when you're preparing for a role, you have so many more years and references and experiences of your own, which yeah. I think is something yeah. that you said earlier, which I found really interesting, is how much of your personal life you use towards your role, because every actor is different, every performer is different, and how much, because you are known for these iconic characters, you know, from playing Cedric Daniels in The Wire to Philip Broyles in Fringe, and your, your characters are so memorable, um, so how, how much of you is in, is in that, or at least in the preparation part of, of acting? That's a tricky question to answer. <laughs> oh, okay. Here's why. Here's why. Okay. And I feel like it wouldn't be so tricky if I were in England. <laughs> okay. But, um, uh, the, tr the thing that I've noticed fairly consistently about, um, uh, American actors, mm. particularly film, film and television, theater, theater much less so, uh, the tendency is to basically play themselves all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so, and you know, I, I, my whole thing was learning how to transform into other characters. I mean, one of the things that drew me to, one of the things that drew me to acting, even for fun in college, was the fact that I could get out of myself. Right, I could, you can escape. Kind of be and express all the things that I didn't right. feel comfortable being and expressing in my life. So on the one hand, um, and also with, with my career, it's tricky because after 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 the wire, I got typecast a little bit. Yeah, you were so always you kind see, of like these intimidating uh, yeah. authority figures, you know, that yeah. <laughs> had these long so you, you, monologues. You, you see the wire, you see the wire, and you see friends, and you see... Um, um, Irving in, in, uh, in, in Bosch and you think well he's kind of playing the same guy I mean to me I'm not they're, they're all different but by the same token th there's such similar types mm. that you think people who don't who don't know my work think I'm that's me that's who I mean you people are. are shocked <laughs> when they meet me and then they, they think that they see that I'm nothing like this guy you're not gonna yeah I mean <laughs> Are you not going to be arresting me or <laughs> telling me my rights or, <laughs> <laughs> or, or even that, even that kind of, just kind of, uh, uh, of, uh, alpha dominant personality. I mean, that's not me. No. I don't even talk like those guys. No, but by you the don't. same token, 
there's a there's a weight there's there's um like it's I think it's very difficult to play how 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 you are in a relationship in a in a, in a marriage if you've never been married. Of course, of course. Um, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget that there was there was a there was scene in Fringe, and I'm angry that I didn't fight the director about it, where um, it's the alternate universe, and I've I've I basically betrayed my world um, for this for this drug to help save my son because he's got this terminal disease. This the the Jared, Jared the Harris Jared Harris's character plays like the evil <laughs> scientist. Yes. Um, and so so I'm I'm working undercover for him you know, as, as boils, um, in the alternate universe. And so there's a scene where I've just come from a funeral and that, uh, for, of one of my people that, that was caused by my actions mm. and I'm, I'm devastated I remember that. about it. Mm. And I, I come in the door and my wife asks me how I am. And my, my, my initial choice was I mean to say? Well, first of all, the line was I'm I'm fine, but my initial choice was to go to go through the mail. Right. And the director was like, "You, I want you know, no, it's not about the mail. You want to leave me your eyes." And the <laughs> thing he didn't understand was that I'm not playing the mail. I'm playing avoiding her eyes. Mm, exactly. Because, You're trying to get away because from one of the, her. You know, one, yeah. Yeah. Because one of the things we established that was different in the alternate universe was. From, from the primary universe is in, in the primary universe, my marriage is falling apart because work was always first mm-hmm. and family was second. Whereas in the alternate universe, the difference was that family was first and so, which is why I was still married. So anybody who's, who's, who's been in a relationship where you, it's so intimate that you know that if you're trying to hide something oh, and, you know and, and, or lie, yeah. your, your partner, they look in your eyes and they know something's off immediately. <laughs> well, you don't even have to say anything. As you said, you, literally going through the mail can be that marker of you are distant. Something's disconnected. Absolutely. Yeah. So, the, yeah. But, you know, things and things that you become known for you know, also a successful franchise like John Wick, all these things that can become like this gilded cage that you can't get out of, which there are worse things in life, of course, than being, you know, put into these character roles and being known for that, well, you know. Except for the thing with John Wick, though, is that it's so different from, I mean, it's interesting. It's so different, the, the, yes. The, 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 the fall that I, fought, that I shot the pilot for Bosch mm-hmm. is also uh, that same fall I shot John Wick and I shot um, this, my season of American Horror Story. Oh wow! Three completely, completely different characters. There's some people to this day who don't realize that, that American Horror Story is me. <laughs> that American Horror Story role was obviously such a huge departure from what you've normally done, and I'm not talking just aesthetically, um, but also your performance, your performative style. So, how did you prepare, prepare for something like that, knowing that you have this perception? amongst your fans who love you you know you have such a loyal there's people that love you a lot so how did you make sure that you prepared for something that might change their you know perception of you oh i didn't i didn't even think about that i mean i didn't i mean i didn't think about oh how's the fans going to see me differently i just thought how do i prepare for this role because i've never i've never wanted to be thought of as a particular role as or as a particular type so uh, for me, it was, it was like, this is what I got into acting for. Um, so the hardest, believe it or not, the hardest thing for me was 
how often scripts changed and how because of how secretive they were yeah. they didn't they didn't they didn't email scripts oh. or signs so you know so the the first hardest thing for me was get do, learning the haitian accent um how are you with accents because of... i know that you obviously do a kenyan accent for in john wick but then yeah. um, how are you with accents? i mean i have an ear i have an ear for accents but i mean i, I mean i was scrambling along trying to find do you know what I mean? Find accents. Yeah. Find, find that, find, to find that accent. Mm. Uh, the, the main source actually ended up being a documentary about Haiti. Oh, um, okay. I had, I watched it. I just had to watch it over and over and over and over again and listen to people and start, and start writing, literally writing down kind of how different vowels and, do you know what I mean? And also kind of get a, get a, get a general sense of what it, what it was. Cause the thing I started realizing it's, it's almost, it's almost a, uh, an African accent with a French, it's it's a mixture of an African and a French accent. Well, yeah, if you look at the history, I mean, talk about your analytical brain. If you study the history of people from Haiti and who visited yeah. and who took over, it's all a mishmash, you know. I mean, like, my, I'm South African, as you can hear. And for me, yeah. it's, you know, there's Dutch and German and, you know, whoever colonized South Africa, the, Brit, the Brits. So I sound like half Australian, half British, half Dutch, you know, because obviously Afrikaans. So there's so many beautiful background things that could inform your you know, your accent, but Haitian is very difficult. I have to say that, that out of, out of a lot of them, you know, it's hard for the, for even just the listener to, to pinpoint it because it is known, but not spoken widely on, you know, commercial US shows. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's a tricky, that, that must've been quite a challenge. I mean, I, I mean, obviously I had to do some research around the, the, the lore, the, 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 what kind of character it was. And in, in terms of um, um, who Papa who Papa Legba is in mythology, mm. Um, mm. but 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 ultimately, you know, I had to get into the psychology of the character. And the thing that I started realizing as I started preparing for him is that he loves. I mean, he just gets so much joy out of his work. He loves taking souls. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like, oh my it's, God, it's almost I just like, got a little bit of my, my hair stuck up I mean, at the it's, back it's, of my neck. It's, I mean, the thing that comes to my mind is kind of, the, it's, it's Fagin and, and, the, and all of the twists and just kind of rubbing the hands together and the, you know what I mean? Mm, mm. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's how I got into character. Yeah. And talking about that, what kind of atmosphere do you want to feel on set? Because I think that preparing for a role and obviously what we talk about on the show constantly is you know, performance and the way that people tackle that. But I also think that the atmosphere that you want around you is so important, uh, or at least something that you, you need to be inspired. You need to be, you have to cultivate a really positive uh, feeling. So what, what is your ultimate um, idea, I suppose, of the perfect atmosphere for you to thrive on set? Everybody's there to do the work. And everybody's there to have a good time nothing is more for me nothing is more destructive than an actor or a director and i've had this experience mostly with actors although i had it with one director and it was, it was a television director um someone who, who recurred on fringe and it was a nightmare every time i had to work with a guy mm. but there's nothing more more destructive than an actor whose main focus is being the center of attention right all the time and not the work 
you know, it's interesting. I was talking to Michael Seitzman about this. Um, I, I recurred very, uh, on a, um, uh, for a very short time, and it was in the same period of time, on a show called Intelligence um, that Josh um, Holloway starred on. Uh, that was a great set. But I was talking, to, you know, uh, when I was meeting with Michael about the character, uh, you know, he said it really perfectly. He said, it only takes one asshole. <laughs> what, to ruin the day? Just one asshole. To ruin, yeah, to ruin the atmosphere, yeah. yeah. God, I can imagine. Yeah. But how do you then deal with that? Because, you know, a lot of uh, actors that I've spoken to or performers, Broadway stars, I, I've spoken to them a little bit about, you know, following some sort of mental or physical health regime so that they can, you know, feel good leading up to and during performance. But how do you then deal with something when you are set to shoot in you know 15 minutes and you've got this absolute arsehole around you feet you know sucking up all the life on set what do you how do you get it's, into the zone it's, it's tough because i've run into it twice once was well actually three times one was uh two of them were on a series mm. so the people that i had to work with for years the first one it was um it was hit or miss depending on the day and he was really he, he was he was really only awful when we were in a group, because it was a class clown thing, and he was, uh, he was kind of bored, and he didn't want to be there. Right, right. And the other person was just was. Uh, it took me real. It took me a while to realize it. Partly because first season he and I didn't have any problems, and then second season we had more and more stuff to do together, and um, he was intimidated by me. So what he would do was he would do all kinds of subtle little stuff to try, try to throw me off. Right. Um, so that you know, do you know what I mean? So that I wouldn't outshine him, which is which is the, you know because it's, it's it's interesting. You know, I was I was listening, I, I just finished listening to the, uh, the Walter Isaacson uh, biography of Steve Jobs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Steve Jobs said a really great thing. He said A-list people want to work with other A-list people. So I mean, invariably, it's uh, although I no that's not not, not always true because one person was actually not me and he did things to mess with. Me try to mess up my performance is actually, I think she's very talented, but she's also, um, she, she was, she became a star very young and, and this was in a film and, um, she grew up with, you know, both her parents are in the industry. So the nepotism, so there's a sense of entitlement. Absolutely. Uh, and the, I can and imagine. The, you know, it, yeah. so, so the, so the brat, the brat, I gotta be the star and I gotta be center of attention if anybody and, and every, every, all, I relate to everybody according to my perception of their status or my perception of how how other people are going to, how the group is going to see me. Right. Well, also could be because yeah. you know who you are. So there's that firm grounding yeah. in who you are. And it could honestly, it, it, just coming from just, I'm in the, in the music industry, you can imagine the ego. Um, and sometimes it's I've not even heard. directed it's sometimes not even directed at you, but because most of us, especially women and you know, women music journalists, you you are you are much more empathetic towards people, uh, you know, depending on what your life or how your life has panned out. But I think sometimes when the brats come on set or you know, people just want to outshine or or feeling intimidated, it's such a personal weakness on their part that it's sometimes not even directed at you it's it's actually just emanating you know it's like this i definitely believe in uh you know frequencies coming from a human body and it, it's sometimes so overwhelming oh uh, absolutely absolutely you know absolutely. but i think that that's incredible that you could see you you can 
and observe it and know exactly when to identify it as opposed to again I suppose if you were young in it for a long time in it for the wrong reasons you can get so affected oh I've still been affected I mean it was tough I mean the yeah. the series things were tough yeah, especially sure. the, the second time it happened because it was so I quite never quite seen anything quite like it mm, mm. um by the time the the thing with the movie happened that was after the series so I I knew uh I had a, first of all, it was a much shorter period of time and I had a better sense of how to deal with it. Right. You're better prepared. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's terrible yeah, that you yeah. were, but at least you had that. Um, so what do you yeah, do in that moment? Do you, do you pander to it? How do you deal with that? Because obviously, you know, peers and networking and connections in Hollywood is vital for, for, you know, I feel like, especially with acting, one of the most challenging things for actors is that you land in a position of really always having to ask approval you know you you ask you have to go for castings you asking to be hired you you having to prove yourself so how did you how do you navigate that when you are faced with people who might necessarily clash or at least you know come in the way of your art well the thing that i started realizing uh after but it started my first experience and then after the second experience i really realized is that nobody's gonna help me so you go to producers and you complain and then it's like uh we we don't know what to tell you yeah (laughs) like because this guy's higher on the this guy's higher on the pecking order than you so it's it's you know i mean that's not what they said but that's that's essentially do you know what i mean right it's Um, it's the the intentions there yeah 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 this is the white male lead and he's going to do what exactly we're we're, we're just going to try to put up with him as best we can yeah exactly so i'm like jeez wow really okay so when the, the movie thing happened, well, first of all, the person actually, first of all, this this person came at me so. What was interesting is that I worked I worked in another film with this person, so I kind of, without having any direct scenes with them, so before, so I'd kind of gotten the gotten the um, the nine one one about him. Right. So what, <laughs> right. so when they came at me and actually gave me an acting note. I, I kind of push, I just push back. Mm. I mean, the first thing Wait, I, they I mean, gave I you an acting note and this they is gave a fellow an actor. They gave me an acting note. Yeah. 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 <gasps> um, the goal. That is, that's awful. Yeah. And I said, I literally said, wow. Well, <laughs> I disagree. Oh, good for you. I mean, I, I mean, it really, and I, I, I did, I did, I just, I looked at him and I, my face, my head dropped and I said, I said it just like I said, wow. Mm. Well, I disagree, mm. but let's try it both ways. Okay. Well, that's pragmatic. And the person, yeah. they got their, their eyes, I mean, their face dropped because they're like, I am so-and-so and you're this person mm. that I don't really know who you are. How can you be talking back to me like this? Mm. I mean, they freaked out. And just that because, up, but I mean, it was like, I'm they sure. were like, oh, oh, oh okay. Well, because yeah. you and obviously from caught then them on, off guard. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then from then on, it became a war of attrition. <laughs> you started a yeah. war, Lance. How did you I, do that? And I didn't think so. So, so, so they, they, there was, there was, a, there was another scene later where this person had uh, a big monologue in a scene. Hmm. And I had a I had a moment at the end of the scene, and the, the thing that worked about it is that our characters hated each other, so oh, sorry. <laughs> that was, so that helped. But this person had a monologue in the scene, and I had a line, and it was a big, it was a huge group scene with a lot of extras, mm. 
and I had a line at the end of the scene because this person's uh, the 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 plot of the, the moment was that this person had this idea that that ended up being a disaster, mm. and because I outranked the person, uh, I just said you're you're done, you're yeah. out, you know, yeah. you know, you're done. So wow. you know when that moment happened in rehearsal, I took a I took a beat, a big beat, and I said you're done, and immediately this this individual starts. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it should be this long pause. I think it's, it's she just needs to move really fast. And, you know, do you agree? And then she turns to the director, do you agree? And he goes, yeah, yeah. I think so. I was like, wow. Okay. Mm. So. And especially not having, as you mentioned, you know, having all these people around you that are particularly yeah. maybe of a different uh, race, not from the same background. You never know the person's personal views. You never know where it's coming from. And as you said, this, class this is, thing I didn't yeah. feel this thing didn't feel about race. It was just about class. Sex. Yeah. 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 So which is um, upsetting we, also we, because I wonder if they would have said that to somebody else, you know, and, and if, that's a, how they, no. if that's how they're no. treating people that are the, quote, the unquote, other two people in know? the scene who are bigger. One person in particular who had been nominated for an Academy Award twice. Wow. And he and I got along great. There's no way this person would have done that to him. Yeah. No way. Yeah. And you don't deserve that. Yeah. You definitely don't deserve that yeah. to somebody to throw you off. But I think that even just talking about it now, it's so fascinating to find out that it, that could have really derailed someone else. If it wasn't, you know, if if they weren't you, it could have derailed. Them. It would have derailed me. It would have derailed me years earlier. Mm. But, what, but here's what was interesting about what happened with that particular thing is that then we shoot, the, we shoot the scene and you know I'm in the group, this group of other people and just by virtue of the way they shot it, they went through the scene and they did ours, they did all this, us in the group, me and, and these, these other two actors, they did our close up first, we're actually watching the thing happen and I'm online. Then they turned around and then we kind of, the scene went very quickly. We turned around and what became, when it came to this person's coverage, they slowed it way down. Mm. Uh, I was like, wow. wow. <laughs> I want to put that in a ringtone. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I um, need to bottle but, that but, up. <laughs> and, and, but the thing about it is that, that big moment that I have at the end of the scene, they, they still had to do a close-up of me for that moment. So they, they, that person slowed it way down. Then they did the moment where I'm, I'm listening, I'm listening and then I have my reaction. And I swear to God, this person starts making faces and ad-libbing <gasps> behind, uh, on my close-up. No. Absolutely, I'm not making but this up. But that's gaslighting. That's gaslighting. It is in a sense and because they're doing that to, th wow. I, I won't ask you who this person is, but I hope that um, yeah. I never come across that person. That's awful. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, I, I can't tell you because you'd know immediately. I mean, they're very famous. Yes. But anyway, so what, but what was interesting was, you know, he said, uh, great, check the gate. And that, I, this is forcing my head that just kept saying, I can't let this happen. I can't let this happen. So, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I need another one. Oh, good I need for another you. Tape. Good for you. And he's like, really? That was going I said, yes, I need another one. And it was late. And it was like 100 extra. I'm like, no, I need another one. <laughs> So I said, now I know what this person's going to do. I'll just pretend they're a piece of furniture and they, they can do whatever they do. And I just wait for the moment and then I'll give it. And, and that, that, that last take was great. Mm. And you're and proud I, of I, that I, I, now. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the next day in the makeup trailer, uh, and my, of course, my, 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 my chair's right next to this person. No, God. <laughs> and, and they say to me, uh, Lance, you know, last night when you left, it seemed like you were, it wasn't just your character, you were really mad. And uh, <laughs> it seems like you were, you know, I just want you to know, uh, you know, what I was doing, I was just trying to help you because I know your character's supposed to be simple, so I was just trying to get you going. I said, but, uh, uh, she said, but you know, it may be, I think it's just a matter of style. If, if you don't want me oh. to do that, I won't do that anymore. I said, I said, uh, yeah, please don't do that anymore. And, oh, uh, you know, you. it was very clear that the person was doing, did that in a public forum. Because if they really wanted to apologize, they'd knock on my door, yes. come into my trailer and apologize. Yes. But they did it in a public forum because they were doing damage control so that, so that you know, they set, they, they, set the, the, uh, they set up the conversation first. So then if I went and started saying anything about how fucked up it was, exactly. then I'd look like the bad guy. Yeah, exactly. And then if you ever had to, you know, smear their name or say something bad, they could just turn around and be like, well, I apologized. I don't know why he's being oh, yeah, so no, sensitive. Oh, yeah, I don't know what he's talking about. I think he's yeah. a guy. I thought we got along. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I was very clearly what that was. And it's yeah. so fascinating because even if it isn't, as we were saying earlier, even if it even that these people don't know you that that person's on set working you're at a job and i think yeah. that that line sometimes gets crossed when that when you are faced with someone whose ego is completely in the forefront of their art of their job of their life of everything and i feel like that's such a it's such a harsh way to to live i feel my sympathy goes out to somebody like that because can you imagine how many conversations that person has probably had in a makeup trailer like that you know i'm sure know. i'm sure they've had a few because i doubt that you Maybe. are the only one who they've done that to um because it just doesn't sound like it sounds like very uh commonplace behavior you know unless you just totally riled them and oh that's really i'm so sorry that happened oh it was a learning experience i mean yeah <laughs> What were some of the most memorable, uh, not teachers, but peers that you worked with then? You know, you mentioned Paul Giamatti and studying with him. And you've obviously, you know, got to work with a internet and world icon, you know, like Keanu, Keanu Reeves. So, and he's, yeah. got, he's notorious for his nature um, just to fans. I mean, oh, I, don't, I haven't really spoken prince. to, you know. He is a prince. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I love that man so much. Yeah. I mean, all the hype, he lives up to it. I mean, as a human wow. being. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. I can imagine. And when it comes yeah. to the, he's, when it comes to the work, it's, he's all about the work. There's mm. no bullshit, mm. no ego. Yeah. So in terms of then artists like musicians that you then look to, you know, as inspiration, because how, how often do you then revisit that side of your life? You know, because you are a working full-time actor, so how do you visit the music side of your of your heart? You know, to make sure that it's it's still stoked and still, you know, still there some somewhat. It's you know it's interesting because I uh, about five or six years ago I started writing classical music again just to get my just as fun because I hadn't written I hadn't written a song in like over ten years. Wow. Um, and then I, I off and on the past uh, few years, I've been kind of working on this piano suite. Um, and it's just been in the back of my mind. I just feel like I just want to start. I need to start writing songs again. Um, and and one, of the, one, of the, one of the things I'm going to, be, I'm going to try to do <clears throat> is to start just kind of doing 
Because one of the things I realized, it just as me as a personality, mm. is that the, the the life of touring that I understand is a kind of the reality of a musician's life. Oh man, I never, I did, I don't want to do that. No, it's 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 not <laughs> it's only a... oh god, it's grueling, but it's also in this day and age, unfortunately, it is the only source of income. So you yeah, are, now that the internet is destroyed, yeah, it's it's awful. But there's so many, yeah. there's so much goodness about it. So, and there's so many actors as well. You know, Steve Martin's a fantastic banjo player. There's so many people. Can you imagine if you formed a super group? Well, he's kind of <laughs> talk about a talk about a polymath. That guy. Oh my god! I, I think I, Steve Martin's oh, amazing. Unbelievable. That's, that's he's somebody I would love to work with. Yeah, I mean, I have never heard a bad word about him. No. And he's, I mean, he's so talented. I mean, it's so smart. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Could you see yourself in a comedy, a, com- a comedic role? Could you see yourself tackling that after, as you oh, said? No, no, you I, know... I mean, obviously you haven't seen corporate. Well, um, it, it, I know you or, have. Ex- or have you? No, I have. But I know that that's something that, again, you you are often turned to for that tough guy. You know, the people oh, know yeah, that you true. can that's play true. that role with your yeah. eyes closed. You're yeah. so good at it, and which is probably so frustrating to people who can't do that role. <laughs> um, but, you, you know, what, what, is in the, what is in the future for you in terms of the dreams that you have kind of always wanted? My dreams have changed, part, partly, be, partly, partly because the, rea- the, the reality of race and, 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 and kind of the gap between what's what I thought was possible and what's really what's really available has, has sobered me. Mm. Um, um, the Wire was the beginning of that education. Um, when we were treated, we were literally. I mean, there was no doubt. I mean, now, I mean, now, I mean, it's it's it's, it's widely regarded as the greatest uh, dramatic series in the history of American television. But at the time, I mean, we were on HBO at the same time as The Sopranos and Six Feet Under and 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 Sex in the City and Entourage, and those shows were getting award nominations up the wazoo. And it, when it came to The Wire, it was crickets. It was like we didn't exist. Mm, mm. And we knew how good we were. It was disgusting. Yeah. So, um, um. But now uh, it's so interesting because because of all the film that I've been able to do and, and being able to do corporate while I'm doing Bosch and I've been able to do so many other different kinds of roles, I'm really, I'm kind of in ter- in ter- artistically, um, I'm kind of living a dream now. I mean, I just, <laughs> I, I, did, I did two films this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I did two films this year where, um, uh, uh, one I played, um, um, oh my goodness, what can't I think of her name? Oh, this is terrible. I just, I just did the, another film with her. Uh, she's, one of the, she's becoming one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Yeah. Uh, she was she was a star in the last, um, I can't think of her name. She was a star in the, in the last minute black movie. Oh, she um, played the Valkyrie in the last oh, horror movie. Uh, oh my gosh, she's fantastic. Tessa Thompson. Is it yeah, Tessa yeah, yeah, Thompson? Tessa, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and um, I just played her father in a, in a, in a, a wonderful period romantic um uh, a romantic drama um and then um it's a very different kind of character um and then i then after that i did a i, I did a, a uh, an independent film um called um 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 oh shoot what's 
something face. It's, it's We've been, be I've been talking oh, to man, you for terrible. too long. That's why your brain is now like tired. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I play, I, I play this. It's a, it's a comedy. I play this pastor mm-hmm. of this, of this, uh, of this progressive church in, uh, in LA. Um, who's, who's, um, who's adopted this young, uh, white guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, he and his, he's, who's, who's kind of a, uh, He's he's well-meaning, kind of ne'er-do-well, who uh, who has this idea to, to do a Christian film to help save the church. Ah, and so um, okay. it's 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 all about kind of um, it, thematically, it's 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 a bit of a send-up of 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 uh, how corrupt a lot of the Christian film industry can be. Absolutely, um, yeah. And how much it's run by people who have nothing, who uh, have no faith and have no connection to, to being Christians. <laughs> um, uh, and how bad a lot of those movies are and how much, inc- how incredibly well, how much money they can make. <laughs> mm. So, um, mm. it's a cinema best, but I, but I, uh, so I get to play, um, kind of this, this corny, uh, Christian pastor. <laughs> I mean, that sounds, um, so that that sounds great. And especially because, as you said, you know, it's kind of sobered you up, uh, the thought of just knowing what what is possible. And also because you already have this beloved fan base that know you and know that your capabilities, I think that surprising them with, you know, different characters and different roles is so is so exciting. On the show, what we usually do is find out what uh, my guest's first performance or concert was that you ever saw? I know you mentioned Sting earlier. So what was the actually first, the, sh- the first show you ever got to experience? Or because you're an actor, uh, maybe the first film you got to see? Wow. I mean, I grew up watching so much film and television that I don't remember the first film I saw. <laughs> the first concert, uh, the, the two, believe it or not, the first two concerts I remember ever going to one was a was a, a school outing in you know, elementary school, mm-hmm. and it was we saw it was a symphony, but it was it was um, they did. It wasn't a, it was a it was a daytime performance of varied pieces to give kind of um, um, kids a taste of classical music, and then the other believe it or not I saw I think I, I was in elementary school and I can't remember how old I was I think I was eight, eight or nine. I saw the Jackson Five. Oh my God! <laughs> wow. Yeah. Where yeah. did you? So because you said, did you grow up? You this, said, is in, this is in Baltimore, in Baltimore at a place called the Civic Center. Yeah, oh. where this where I grew up. Yeah, at a place called the Civic Center, which is a huge. Wow. Um, it's been revamped, but yeah. Do you feel like that seeing them had some sort of effect on on what you've been able to do? Do you feel like they they inspired you, or at least just? you know, made you think about that world of, of music and performance and art? Believe it or not, I wasn't a big fan of the Jackson 5. I went because some, a, a friend of mine invited me to go with his family. And I just said, okay. Uh, I actually, believe it or not, it was the Partridge family. I wanted to be David Cassidy. <laughs> um, I, my parents got me a drum set when I was 10. Mm-hmm. And I would sit, I would come home and I would sit for a uh, hours and I would play parts family records and I'd play the drums and sing to these. <laughs> you, what yeah. is something that you wish someone might have told you about performing when you began acting? What is somebody, what is, what is that one thing that you feel, you know, in a more like altruistic sense, what kind of uh, almost advice would you have, have wanted to hear before you started going down this beautiful path that you've had in your professional career as far as as far as acting when i started 
gosh, I don't know because I've been so fortunate. And when I started acting professionally, I was so kind of arrogant about how good I thought I was, mm. <laughs> how talented <laughs> I thought I was, that I didn't, that um, it, it wasn't like I, I felt like I was stumbling a lot in terms of performance. That happened later as I got bigger and bigger roles. Right. Uh, and I realized that, that my performance was, wasn't always consistent, especially if the, if the writing wasn't good, if the director wasn't good. Man, that's a tough one. Because um, on the one hand, I'd never tell anybody to do it the way that I did it. But, I, but um, the way that I did it was so perfect for me. How would you tell people to do it? Like, you know, you mentioned your daughter earlier. I wouldn't. I can... oh. <laughs> Wait, you wouldn't tell anybody to Yeah, I wouldn't give it. it. I mean, it... <laughs> no, I don't. I'm sorry, the King Mark. I wouldn't, never, I wouldn't tell anybody not to be an actor. That's not what I mean. But yes, in terms no, of doing advice on a, how to, I mean, partly because it, it's changed, the industry's changed so much. But even back then, um, if there's one thing, it's more professionally than artistically. Because the artistic stuff, that was more, everything that I learned, even along the way, was stuff that I had to, it was, I had to learn as a, you know what I mean? I had to learn through doing. Right. I don't feel like there was anything anybody could tell me that was going to help. Right. But professionally, I think that I wish I'd understood how much, how soon I needed to start thinking about being in charge of my career. As opposed to, you know, something, you know, something one of my first agents said to me was do good work and let them come to you. And I wish I'd understood what a lie that was. In what way? Just because that, that, that isn't a finite action. You can't just uh, expect, expect well, people to the, come to, the, the to you. The comment that, that this agent made to me was out of my complaint about not having more opportunities. Right, right. That is true for a certain, to a certain extent. But that's very much a white guy's frame of reference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I believed it was true because I knew, how, or I believed I knew how good I was. Um, and, that, and how good I thought I was was predicated as much, if not more, on how hard I worked at the craft as how talented I thought I was. Because it wasn't that I knew I was talented. I mean, I never questioned that I was talented. But once I got to Yale, it was like, everybody's talented. <laughs> yeah. So it's more or less an even playing field. Well, except for Paul. He's, yeah. But it's more or less an even playing field. So the only thing that's going to give me an advantage is, is that I'm, I'm better at the craft. And you're continuing to do that with every experience as well. You know, you talk about somebody like Paul. Look at his career. It, it's just, yeah. I, I just binged. We well, uh, shot out of a cannon. I mean, that, that guy. I just yeah. uh, binged Billions actually the other day um, because I, it was one of those shows. I don't know why I had a block. I just couldn't stand watching a bunch of white guys who are rich fight. And then I thought in my head, well, yeah. you know what? I've got to just do it. And the writing is phenomenal. And when you said earlier that it really can help an actor to have good writing and have a good director... I, I mean, it, it's it's mind blowing that show. So, have you seen or spoken to him ever since your Yale class over the years? Oh, I I, I was just on the phone with him yesterday. Oh, wow. oh no, Paul, no, oh, no, Paul, I mean, every you know when I was in John Wick last uh, last summer, we had lunch a couple times. No, we've been friends ever since. He, oh, he, that's he, fantastic. He, he and one other person. He, uh, I'm keeping touch with one other person. They're my closest friends from from uh, drama school. From drama school. Oh yeah, Paul's great. And have yeah, you have you worked great. with him yet, or do you feel like you? You know, we haven't worked together. We have not worked together since school. Wow, I feel like it's time. 
It's time for that to happen. You 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 got to make. Well, I'm it trying. Happen. I keep trying to get them to do this. <laughs> you gotta make. You gotta talk to your people. Gotta make it happen. But that would be wonderful, especially considering you friends. You know, can you imagine bringing that energy? Yeah. It's funny. I called him up yesterday to ask him some producing advice because he's he's a producer in one of my favorite comedies on television now. You know, a lot of people don't know it. It's um, it's called Lodge Forty Nine. Oh. AMC. Yes. Okay. So have you seen that show? I haven't seen that show. I'm going to be completely honest, which is strange because I I feel like I'm quite. It's (gasps) wow. It's its own thing. It is completely a character-driven piece. It is brilliant. It is brilliant. It's based on short. The 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 one one of the co-showrunners is actually the guy who created the world because it's based on his short stories. Oh. Um, And I don't remember. I don't remember the guy's name, but he'd never written a script before. He'd only written like short stories and. I think oh essays and novels. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that probably attributes to like, as you said, knowing too much can sometimes, you know, it can sometimes uh, not help the process. So maybe because they don't, you know, he doesn't know much about script writing, it probably, it probably helps his work. Wow. Well, in terms of trying to, the thing that seasoned showrunners often do is try to do what they think works mm, and mm. as opposed to as opposed to being true to the the originality of the idea because the, the what, one of the things that that's been um another thing that's kind of uh been a hard wake up over the past couple of decades is how how much how 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 i don't want to say ubiquitous but um mm, mm. How, how, how much most studio executives um, rely on numbers of course, and the yeah. past to make decisions about programming that so because so they don't they don't have to have they don't have to have taste because what they're do all they're doing is going going by formulas numbers and and uh, and formulas from the past but but ironically I mean what 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 be, generally what becomes the breakout hits are things that are completely original that people haven't seen before. But nobody wants to take a risk on that. Absolutely. It's, it's again, to yeah. be honest, it's likened the same in the music industry and the same in Broadway. On Broadway, it's, it's that they think that people want familiarity, but we actually want to be yanked out of our seats. Yeah. You know, we, we, don't, yeah. we want, that's why The Good Place and I suppose talking that's about the canon. That's what a great show. Oh my God. The Good Place <laughs> is one of my favorite. Talk yeah. about writing. Now that is a writer's room. I wish I could be a fly in the wall. It, oh my gosh. But, but wait, so is Lodge 49, is that a, a talking about titles? Because I don't know anything about it, but is that alluding to... The Crying of Lot is that Pynchon's. Does that have anything to do with Thomas Pynchon's The Crying of Lot Forty Nine? I wonder if that's. I wonder, I wonder if, if that's the thing. same. Yeah, I'll go and look look it up. Ah, very in- well. Thanks for giving me a recommendation. That's all. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's. A, I mean, that's a great show. That's a great show. And, they, oh, and, and, and I think they just finished shooting the second season. So, so you asked him about yeah. production tips or producing well, yeah, yeah, tips? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Because that's, that's one of the, oh, that's the thing I didn't get to. You know, one of the things I realized that I really, really want to do is I want to produce great stuff, great television and film. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that would be phenomenal, especially because of your the way that your brain works, your experience, the depth of the roles that you've, you know, managed to 
to to to do i feel like you would be the perfect person for that and also you have clearly what it sounds like is compassion for um for the actors as well you know so as well as the story so i think you'd be perfect oh well i'm excited to hear what what else you get you 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 start getting involved in and uh, i hope he gave you some good advice uh or at least some good uh, tips he did he did. Yeah. <laughs> Say no more. Part, a lot of it was just about how hard. Yeah, it really is just harder to sound. <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> so, you, so there's no easy way in. This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble, and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and the Kickback for our theme song, Rube and buy their music at thekickbackband.com, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and the Consequence Podcast Network, where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. listened this far why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too for information on new episodes be sure to follow us on facebook twitter or instagram at tmbtgpod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show thanks again and i miss you already Consequence Podcast Network.